We are very blessed today to have Susan Norman coming to speak to us again. Many of you know Susan. Uh, she is a pillar of, of, of learners and a pillar of St. John's. She has shared with us before about her work with international students and work on campuses, but today she is going to speak on something completely different, which I totally applaud. Uh, she, she said, she's a provocative, interesting woman. <laughs> she said to me, do you think they'll let us put it in the bulletin? Sermons are not enough. And I said, yes, yes. Very, very, very intriguing topic. And uh, I know that she will have great insight to share with us. So please join me in welcoming her and thanking her. I'm sorry, Jim. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, that, that's a good, good introduction. Uh, Lauren Wilkinson one time quoted a poem, uh, uh, Stumble and fall, stumble and fall, the sin of Adam comes to us all. <laughs> um, I, I, I was about to apologize for being giving you a provocative title, I'm not a provocative woman. Uh, I prefer to think of the title as edgy. Better? Edgy. Um, I want to be very clear. Sermons are a very important way of teaching the good news of Jesus Christ. Proclaiming, expounding the word of God, uh, declaring the truth to us. Very important, and here at St. John's, we have exceptional preaching. I know you know that. It is powerful, it is effective, it is extremely well done, and we can all be deeply, deeply grateful for that. But it's not quite enough. I'm sure you're familiar with the recent fad, WWJD. Is that right? I, I'm acronomically challenged. What would Jesus do? And it's used for everything. Uh, would Jesus wear a fur coat in spite of animal rights if he lived in a cold climate? If Jesus got old and gray, would he dye his hair? What, what, would Jesus dry, drive a lecturer? Uh, and and this is an important question. Oh, is it Lexus? Thank you. I, uh, I'm also car challenged. Um, so, um, oh, Lexus is a game I play online. Right? Yeah, yeah. Scrabble online, very fun. Um, but um, we don't so much ask the question. What did Jesus do? And when it comes to teaching, we really need to ask that question. What did Jesus do? How did he teach? Um, we know that he taught and he taught and he taught everywhere he went. And we know that he left his disciples with the teaching mandate. Go into the whole world, make disciples, teach them. Uh, in one way or another, all Christians are teachers. So it is ironic that we don't always look closely at how Jesus taught. At the, um, the turn of the millennium, which 
unlike the students I work with, most of us remember when 1999 became 2000 or 2000. Time magazine declared that Jesus was the most powerful, influential person, not only in the 20th century, but in the entire history of humankind. Uh, And even when he is not acknowledged as the Lord of the cosmos, the Son of God, the King of Kings, he is acknowledged as an excellent teacher. Um, so, today we're going to look at some of the ways he taught. First of all, he taught everywhere he went. At weddings, at funerals, in the synagogue, beside the lake, in a boat, um, in uh, the Pharisee's home, beside his friend's tomb, walking from town to town, he taught. And even when he was dying a torturous death on the cross, he continued to teach. His prayer, for example, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, is a profound example of what he, one of the many things that he taught. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Jesus taught everyone. Um, He taught educated people. He taught simple people. He taught women and children, which is not insignificant. When Jesus let uh, Mary sit at his feet um, in their home, that was actually a posture of a disciple. She wasn't just a woman on the edge of the crowd. He invited her in to his, um, to his, uh, himself as her teacher. Um, he was, he taught religious leaders, prostitutes, outcasts, inner circle power brokers, tax collectors, and even a hated Roman soldier. Um, if we are to look from an educational point of view, at what were Jesus' teaching goals, it's pretty interesting. First of all, he wanted people to think in new ways, to shift their perspective, to review what they'd always believed, what they'd always thought, and look afresh at ideas and ways of being. He wanted people to change internally. His first proclamation when he came into his ministry as an adult was repent, turn, change, redirect yourself, reorient yourself, change inside. He also, uh, his goal was to help people know the kingdom of God and to live in it, to live in it with joy, with understanding, with love for God and love for human beings. Those were his teaching goals. And he set about uh, teaching in some pretty interesting ways. Uh, everyone is familiar with probably the, the most common uh, technique or strateg- teaching strategy that Jesus used, and that's parables. Um, one uh, scholar has said, Jesus not only spoke in parables and regularly insisted that what he was proclaiming could not be set forth in any way other than parables. He was practically an ambulatory parable in and of himself. Um, Forgive me when I talk about Hebrew and Greek with Dr. Packer sitting here and Harvey sitting there, uh, scholars all over the place. I, uh, I sadly 
um, only know what I'm told about Hebrew and Greek. But the word that is translated into English as parable um, comes from the Greek word um, parable, uh, from which we get parallel lines and various other words. And um, the Greek word means uh, to place alongside, parallel lines, to place alongside. But it in the... Um, in the thinking of the uh, Jewish people, they would also be influenced by the uh, Hebrew word mashta, um, don't know if that's how to pronounce it, which means resemblance or comparison. So what, and so um, the, the uh, New Testament writers um, use this Greek word infused with Hebrew uh, meaning, which is something they, they did before, I think, um, to describe what was a very new emerging literary form. It's not exactly that Jesus invented the parable, but he took it to a whole new level. Um, and so um, this is a very helpful definition, I find, of parables by um, another New Testament scholar named Dodd. At its simplest, the parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness and strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its use, its, sorry, its precise application to tease it into active thought. Okay, so it's meant to puzzle us. It's meant to say, what? It's meant to surprise us. It's meant to um, upset us, to shatter our preconceived ideas. Parables, quite interesting. They encourage active participation. The, the readers are drawn in. And of course, one of the ways that Jesus does that is by talking about things that are absolutely everyday, a lost coin or a lost sheep. Ed and I have just moved into a new apartment Everything is lost. <laughs> Yesterday we spent about an hour and a half looking for three notebooks. We found them. I was convinced they had disappeared into thin air. Um, Jesus used the everyday things of life, yeast um, uh, and sheep, um, to, to <coughs> kind of draw people in to what he had to say. And then, quite often, there's a twist. So, the rich fool has a bumper crop. He builds new barns. This is so exciting. He's getting even richer. And then, he dies. A man goes down a well-traveled road to Jericho. And, what happens? Well, the bad guy does something remarkably good. And the good guys walk right by and do nothing at all. The twist, the upside down, the shake it up. The son of the rich father leaves home full of, of uh, confidence, full of excitement about his new life. And he ends up where? In a pigsty? Um. So we can see how Jesus is teaching his people, his listeners, to think in new ways. He's reorienting them to Jesus, to his own way of thinking, shaking it up. So the things of earth become the realities 
of the kingdom of God. Um, light shining forth in the darkness. The open arms of the father welcoming home the lost son. The older brother's lack of forgiveness and missing, and he misses the party. Um, so life in the upside down kingdom of God is held out. Rich, joyful, painful, full of light and love. But problems are, I'm sorry, parables are also problematic, right? First of all, they're hard to understand. I have a, a wonderful uh, description of Chesterton's description of parables. So Chesterton said that if you gave people an, 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 sorry, an analogy that they, and they claim that they do not understand, you should graciously offer them another. If they say they don't understand that either, you should oblige them with a third. But from there on, if they still insist that they do not understand, the only thing left is to praise them for the one truth they do have a grip on. Yes, you tell them that is quite correct. You do not understand. <laughs> so, um, um, they have also been, the parables have also been interpreted through the centuries in very weird and unbiblical ways. They can mean just about anything at all. I don't know if any of you are familiar with a book that was published in the early 70s, which dates me thoroughly. Um, it was called the, it's called The Pooh Perplex. Anyone familiar with that? Okay. So it was about Winnie the Pooh. It was a, a, a pretend series of essays, uh, literary criticism of Winnie the Pooh, which is a delightful children's book about a bear named Pooh. Um, and uh, so um, this, the person who wrote this book pretended he was scholars from different, um, um, with different opinions, and some, you know, uh, Freudian, some um, Marxist, just a couple of the titles of the chapters. This is so much fun I had to include it. Um, the um, one, one chapter, the paradoxical persona, the hierarchy of heroism in Winnie the Pooh, a bourgeoisie writer's proletarian fables, poison paradise, the underside of Pooh, the theory and practice of bardic verse, notations on the hums of Pooh. It, um, it goes on. Oh, this is my favorite. Mill A. A. Mill's honey balloon pit gun tail bathtub complex. <laughs> so the parables have suffered a similar fate uh, by people who thought they knew better. Um, and um, yet, when we when we think about it, the parable is not about facts. It's about. It's meant to be evocative. It's meant to puzzle us, to make us go deeper. It's meant to explore new ways. Um, and it's meant to make us feel. Most of all, it's meant to make us feel. Stories are about creating empathy. So again, the, the prodigal son, which uh, one literary critic has called the best short story in the history of literature. It's a story. It's meant to make us feel. So we, Christians, we feel with the prodigal son, don't we? 
We feel like we've been in the pig pen and we need to go home to the Father. It's used in sermons all the time to call us back to God. But then, if we're truthful, many of us have felt like the elder brother. We felt that somehow we're missing out. Somehow everyone else in the Christian community is more important than we are. And we get the 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 um, leftovers of the father's affection sometimes we feel that way and then you know especially if we have children of our own we identify with the father we see his longing for his son we share his joy when someone comes home we're meant to feel questions uh, everyone, I'm sure, is familiar with, uh, in education circles, with the, um, the uh, way of teaching entirely using questions. So the teacher doesn't actually give out any information at all. The teacher asks questions. Socrates took this to a very high level. Um, but it's widely used today in teaching all kinds of things. Um, the questions make the learner curious leads them on to the next question, to the next one, to the next one. Um, Jesus used questions in a very wide range of ways, not just to arouse curiosity. Um, so here are some, just a tiny few, four, of the questions that Jesus asked. Um, first of all, in the story of the Good Samaritan, at the end of it, he said, which of these three, the Samaritan, the Pharisee, and the priest, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the injured man? I wonder, um, I wonder what um, was going through the mind of the person who had asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus called in that, in that story, and with that question, he brings the story into focus and asks his listener to change his perspective, to think in entirely new ways. So that was a question to probe, to probe accepted uh, moral standards, social norms, to get below the surface. Um, and then there's an interesting question at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry when, he, when some of John's disciples saw him and said, look, the Lamb of God. And Jesus turns to them and says, what do you want? Now, on the surface, that's a pretty understandable question you know you're talking about me what do you want but when you think about it it's really inviting a deeper thought what is it that you don't have that you think I can give you what is it that you need to know that your current teacher is not teaching you and um, so th they answer with another question where do you live Again, stupid question. What does that have to do with anything, uh, the Lamb of God? Um, but it, they were, I think, that they were nervous. The great teacher is talking to them, um, and he's asking them a 
question. And I think that they just, first thing that came into their head, well, where do you live? Um, where we live is important, uh, and it says something about us. So, um, But because of Jesus' question, their question, Jesus said, come and see. And they spent the day with him. That was the beginning of their participating in another of Jesus' teaching strategies, apprenticeship. They became his disciples. They followed him. They lived with him. I'm not going to talk about apprenticeship, but I just had to throw that out there. Um, so um, he drew them in with this fairly simple question with an undercurrent, with another level. Another time, Jesus healed a man's hand. And, of course, the, I think it was on the Sabbath. Yes, it was on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees objected. And he said, what is lawful? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? There's only one answer to that question. Um, but he was probing their religious understanding of what is good. He was probing their understanding of the law. He was calling them to look beyond the letter of the law, to the spirit of the law. His question was meant to uh, probe, to be begin the process of change. Um, then there was Peter, the question that Jesus asked Peter, um, at the shore of the lake, this is a post-resurrection appearance, um, and uh, they've been uh, the disciples have been out fishing. That was their default activity, um, and they come into shore where Jesus is making breakfast for them, and um, Jesus says to Peter, "Well, first of all, what he didn't say to Peter, he didn't say, Peter, have you got it all straight?" You're the leader of the church. I'm leaving it all to you. The future of the cosmos rests on you, Peter. Um, have you got the instruction manual I gave you? Have you taken the right courses? Are you ready? And instead he says, Peter, do you love me? And then he says, Peter, do you love me? And a third time, Peter having assured him that he did love him, he says, Peter, do you love me? Three times Peter had denied knowing Jesus. Three times Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? But my favorite question that Jesus asked uh, is at the house. I don't have a clock. Okay. Oh, there it is. Good. Okay. <laughs> Got to talk fast. Um, th the third question was, <laughs> was when um, uh, Simon, the Pharisee, invited Jesus to his house and big, uh, probably quite a big dinner, rich house, bright lights, you know, um, and um, a woman, a prostitute comes in off the street uh, uh, pours ointment on Jesus, weeps tears of repentance. And Simon, of course, is horrified, and, and Jesus asks him the question about, you know, who's forgiven? I mean, who, who um, is forgiven the most? Um, 
I forget the wording, sorry. Uh, but but uh, Simon answers the question correctly. The person who sinned the most um, is the one who loves the most. Anyway, yes. you know the one I mean. <laughs> and um, so, um, and then Jesus says to Simon, Simon, do you see the woman? What a stupid question. The woman was so obvious that everyone saw her. She had made a spectacle of herself. Of course everybody saw her. What was he really asking? He was asking, Simon, do you see how hospitable that woman has been? You didn't do your duties as a host. She did. Simon, do you see how she loves and honors me? Simon, do you see how faith is transforming this woman's life? That's what he was asking Simon. All summed up in that one question. Simon, do you see this woman? Questions are very powerful. Sometimes I think we teachers should um, speak less and ask more questions. Another um, fascinating teaching strategy that Jesus used um, is silence. Now, generally speaking, we're afraid of silence, particularly in a teaching situation. When a teacher asks a question and nobody answers, the silence is uncomfortable. The teacher thinks, oh, am I not a very good teacher? Have I asked the wrong question? Have they not done their homework? Have they not heard a word I've said? Uh, and the and the pupils are equally uncomfortable, and they think, oh dear, um, dare I say what I think? I'm afraid I might have the answer wrong. Nobody else is speaking. Maybe I've got it all wrong. So silence can be very awkward. But um, several interesting essays have been written on the use of silence in teaching. Um, and uh, one... Um, uh, a scholar has used the phrase that silence can bring students to a point of um, excitement born of possibility. Silence opens up space for possibilities. Um, the same educator uh, says that when a teacher allows silence in the room, uh, he or she is actually relinquishing power. There's always a power dynamic between the teacher and the students. Silence reduces that uh, power imbalance and gives people um, the, uh, their own possibility of learning without words. Um, twice Jesus used this. Once was when he was um, before Pilate. And um, I'll just, just read it to you. Pilate asks, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. 
the um, Jesus didn't need to answer the question to defend himself because everybody knew that the accusations were false. The witnesses had been somehow made a god by the by the leaders to to um, tell lies about Jesus. Pilate knew that they were lies. Jesus knew that they were lies. Everybody in the court knew that the accusations were false. Jesus' silence gave people the opportunity to remember that, to realize what that meant. Did it, did it work? Did people learn? Pilate went ahead and handed Jesus over to be executed. Um, another time that Jesus used silence was when he um, that was when the woman taken in adultery was brought, brought before him, um, and the the Jews said, you know, she's been taken. In adultery, the law says we must stone her. What do you say? Jesus didn't answer. Um, what he did in the silence that followed was he handed the decision about whether to stone her or not back to the men who had brought her forward. He, he made them make the decision. Um, he allowed space for cooling of anger and for sober reflection. But most of all, he made space for them to think about themselves and their own sinfulness. How could they cast the first stone if they thought with any degree of honesty and self-reflection about their own sins? Apparently, they learned what Jesus wanted to teach them in the silence. And um, they walked away from the situation. Um, the most, one of the most interesting things about this story, I find, is that as these accusers walked away, John says, the oldest first. Interesting, isn't it? So, um, were they wiser because they were older? Or had they had more opportunity to sin through their lives than the young guys? We don't know. But in the silence, Jesus um, brought truth out. Taught them about their own sinfulness. Um, let's see. Okay. I'm losing my notes here. Along with, you know, the, everything else in the house. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, now it's eye-rolling time, okay? You, some of you may roll your eyes metaphorically or literally. Uh, I want to talk about poetry and Jesus' use of poetry. Um, poetry was... Uh, very uh, commonly used teaching strategy in years gone by, before the internet. 
when memory was important and you couldn't just look it up on Google. It is a very powerful to teaching tool. It does aid memory. Um, in rhythm and rhyme, uh, help us to remember. Learning a poem is easier than learning a, 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 a dialogue or a discourse. The, um, it's been used to teach skills from one generation to another. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. I was um, recently, even though I sometimes can't remember my own phone number, I realized that I remembered entire, in, in its entirety in Flanders Fields where poppies grow. Mm. Uh, beside the crosses row, I could, I could recite it to you right now. I checked on the internet, of course, to make sure I was remembering it correctly. And I was. I learned it as a child. It's there in my head. Uh, you, poetry puts feelings into words. It clarifies emotions and gives them shape and form. The, um, I have some here, a couple of interesting um, comments about poetry. At, after 9-11, someone said this, the poems pasted on buildings all over New York after the terrorist attack attest to poetry's power to communicate the essential, to ease the pain, to ask questions, and to bring comfort. Around the same time, a poet uh, wrote this. This is a, I had to throw in a hockey reference uh, for one of our beloved members, who will be anonymous, who loves hockey secretly. So this is for that person. Uh, it's, not, it's not Ed. <laughs> He's not a closet hockey fan. Uh, the goalie in hockey stands up. Oh, he's talking about a poet, what a poet is, the status of a poet. The goalie in hockey stands apart from others, marginalized. When all the skating and sliding around on the ice begins to fail us, the goalie is the poet. Eugene Peterson, in his book on Revelation, um, Reverse Thunder, says that poetry, which he finds extensively in the book of Revelation, is not a language of objective explanation, but a language of invitation. Poetry invites us in, again, to feel, to see things differently, to acknowledge complexity, to express what we feel deeply and can express for ourselves. When I was preparing this, I was thinking about that aspect of expressing what we can't say for ourselves. And um, this is a sentimental um, story, so those of you who hate sentiment can turn off your, your ears. When my father died and I was uh, flying back to Nova Scotia for his funeral, Going through my head was the first lines of Tennyson's poems, break, break, break on the cold gray stones, O sea. Oh, that my tongue could utter all the thoughts that arise in me. I, I, 
I wanted to be able to express what I was feeling. And that, that poem seemed to be the only way to do it. But I couldn't remember the rest of it, despite what I've just said about memory. And um, I had to wait until I could look it up in a book and read the rest of it. Yes, yes, yes. That's a description of grief. That's what I'm feeling. It both normalizes and individualizes our feelings. Um, was Jesus a poet? Was Jesus a poet? Well, the interesting thing about this is that mm, nobody thought much about that until in the year 1925, a, a New Testament scholar translated the Gospels um, from the, uh, from the English translations of the Greek back into Aramaic, which is probably the language that Jesus spoke, very close to Hebrew. Um, and there, through this translation, it was discovered that Jesus actually made extensive use of poetry, um, particularly parallel construction, which is the main poetic device of Hebrew poetry, not the only one. There was also rhythm and rhyme, which nobody had noticed before. The um, <clears throat> So the scholars have since discovered that, in fact, there are five kinds, different kinds of parallel construction recognized in Hebrew poetry, which are present in the teachings of Jesus. When I was... Um, <coughs> writing my my thesis on this topic. Uh, I, I read a book on Hebrew poetry, and I wrote a description of this parallel construction, four of the forms, which I sort of understood because I have a background in English literature. But the fifth form of parallel construction, I just didn't get it. I couldn't see it. So I left it out of my thesis. And when I sent that section to my committee none of whom was a biblical scholar. They were all adult educators. One of my professors wrote back and said, what about the fifth form of parallel construction? <laughs> I thought nobody in the world would know that there were five, not four. So I had to go back to the book and figure it all out. So there's synonymous, antithetical, um, uh, synth synthetic, step or climactic, and I can never pronounce this word, a chiasmatic, chias, chiasmic, C-H-A-I-A-S-M-I-C. That's why I couldn't understand it. I can't even pronounce it. Um, there is, um, it, there are examples of it all. Sometimes the antithetical is one statement followed by a contrary statement. Sometimes it's uh, synonymous. Uh, Hebrew poetry use, uh, and parallel construction uses a lot of repetition. Interestingly enough, on Friday, I was uh, working with an Iranian student. I was helping him get into Paul, more polished English a letter of intent that he was sending in order to get into a new program. And when I said, cut this out, it's just repetition, he looked at me and he said, in Farsi, uh, the language of Iran, we use repetition a lot. He said, we could talk for hours saying the same thing over and over again. <laughs> and, and he said, in English, you don't do that. 
I thought, hmm, that is so true. We have no room in our fast-paced culture for repetition. So I let him leave in his repetition. <laughs> um, and it was a reminder to me that ah, we're enculturated. We're enculturated to relegate poetry to the feminine, uh, to the sentimental. We don't see it as powerful, a way to teach. So it helps with memory, it expresses the inexpressible, it invites us in, it comforts, it teaches hearts, not just minds. And Jesus used poetry extensively. I'm at six, we're seven, we're getting there. Here we are. Okay. Uh, you will be glad to know, I hope, that Jesus used puns. How many people like puns? Hey. <laughs> Whether we're good at them or not, they're kind of fun. So um, the obvious pun that Jesus used was Peter's name, Peter the Rock. When we look at that superficially, uh, it seems just like a little little word play. But actually, he, Jesus gave Peter a name. <clears throat> Names usually <coughs> reflect the person's character or so on. But Peter gave, Jesus gave Simon the name Peter the Rock, which, by the way, is the same in Greek uh, as well, um, in order to challenge him, encourage him, help him to change, to be, to live into the name that Jesus was giving him. Peter the Rock. I expect it was quite a joke, not just because it was a pun, but because of the thought of Peter being stable and solid and reliable. Probably the disciples thought that was quite a joke. Remember, this happened later, of course, but um, on the uh, at the Last Supper, when Jesus was uh, washing his disciples' feet and, feet, and Peter said, "No, no, no, Jesus, I don't want you to wash my feet." And Jesus explained what he was doing, or explained why. And Peter said, "Okay, not just my feet, all over." You know, that's Peter, like not <laughs> not the unchangeable rock yet. The other interesting use of puns, and again, this came, came to be understood when the, the Greek was retranslated into Aramaic. The gnat and the camel. When Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, criticizing them for not loving um, grace and, or mercy and truth and justice, he said, you strain for a gnat and you swallow a camel. The, the uh, Pharisees would use a strainer when they poured wine, say, uh, into a cup, so that in case there were any insects, because insects were unclean. You don't want insects in your wine. You don't anyway, but if, you're, if they're unclean, yeah, you strain. Um, and, he, and he said, you do that, but then you swallow a camel. Now, 
that's a funny image, isn't it? You know, imagine like a leg sticking out here and a hump sticking out here and, you know, kind of what's happening down here as we swallow the camel. It's funny. But it's also a pun because in Aramaic, the two words camel and gnat are uh, four-letter words, same letters, different arrangement for those letters. So it is, uh, they, sound, they sound similar. That's not, uh, this is not an Aramaic expert talking, but it's true. So um, he was, with this pun, jolting their complacency, making them laugh. Yes, I'm sure they thought it was funny. Yes, even in English it's funny. But he is really asking them to look at themselves, at what they do. What is this law all about? What does it really mean to follow the laws of the food laws? Jesus used hyperbole, which is a way of painting an exaggerated picture uh, to amuse, uh, to make people laugh. So the listener believes a reality because the teacher is depicting a greater falsehood. So if I say to you, um, you know, I was picking berries on the North Shore and a bear came out of the woods. And I tell you, that bear was three stories high. And that's a hyperbole. It's a gross exaggeration. Bears don't, aren't three stories tall. But by, by putting it that way, I, I help you to feel my fear. The exaggeration does that. I'm telling you a truth. The bear was large and frightening, but I'm using an obvious falsehood in order to help you to see that. That's hyperbole. Uh, the, um, it, it, it shifts you from one groove, disbelief that I actually saw a bear on the North Mountain while I was picking berries, to, oh my goodness, what a terrifying experience. Shifts, helps you to feel, helps you to live into the, another use of hyperbole is that uh, you, you um, are eager to take the speck out of your brother's eye, but you've got a piece of lumber coming out of yours. It's kind of funny. You can imagine it as a cartoon, but it helps them to see the truth about their own behavior. Irony is um, interesting. There can be... Uh, where. The outcome is different from the expectation. Again, the rich fool. It's kind of black humor, isn't it? This, this rich man getting more and more and more. And suddenly, it's all over. He's dead. They can't take it with him. That's irony. And then there's that um, incident when uh, Jesus was again uh, responding to the criticism of the Pharisees, and he calls them wisdom's children. He had just told them that they were foolish. And then he calls them wisdom's children. The contrast between how they think of themselves is very, very wise and how they actually are is funny, but it's also provocative. I'm going to leave lots of time for questions. Um, the Interesting, um, I'm, I'm not going to talk about several other teaching strategies. Um, I'm not going to talk about 
Jesus' use of, at least here I am talking about it, sorry, <laughs> I'm not going to talk extensively about Jesus' use of, um, of um, um, goodness, my words, they've gone the way of the lost coin. <laughs> um, reenactment. Uh, reenactment is a, a teaching tool where you encourage learners to live into a part, to interact with others in a from a historical scenario. So uh, a Christmas pageant is a reenactment of the story of Jesus' birth. Um, and reenactment is, is very powerful because it involves all the senses. So I'm just mentioning that because the one of the teaching strategies of Jesus that has survived besides the sermon is reenactment or which we call Holy Communion. So the reenact, the communion is a reenactment of Jesus' last meal with his disciples, which was a Passover meal, which is a reenactment of the uh, meal in the story of Exodus, the great liberation <coughs> narrative of the Jewish people. Um, and this was Jesus um, using a teaching technique to help people through time and through space and distance. How was Jesus, the great teacher, going to teach us? 2,000 years later, different hemisphere. What could he do to teach us? And he chose reenactment uh, to help us to know him, uh, to learn what he had to teach. The... Um, so I, um, I think that that's just another possibility for us. Our communion has been ritualized um, and may not always help us to live into that Passover meal. Maybe there are some ways that we can think about that. Okay, so um, I would like to reiterate my deep wholehearted belief in the importance of sermons. Jesus used them, although it would be fun to look at his sermons and see how lively they were, how interactive, and how uh, willingly he allowed his sermons to be interrupted by questions, by people needing healing. That's a topic for another day. Um, most of all in this, this morning, I would like us to see that Jesus used different strategies because people learn in different ways. This is a fundamental reality of anyone who is in education. Different people learn in different ways. Some people learn through words. Some people learn through pictures. Some people learn through reenactments. Some people learn through body movement. The more the senses are involved, the more of our senses are involved in the educational experience, the more we learn. The retention is greater. So again, communion, all of our senses are involved. Hearing, seeing, tasting, touching, they're all there in that experience. And so that is why I believe we need different ways to teach. And Jesus' teaching, again, 
helping people to think in new ways, helping them to change eternally, to turn to God, helping them to live harmoniously in the kingdom with joy and love. Now, you get your turn. Questions? Yes. I guess from an apologetics point of view, I found that statement about translate what I read earlier about uh, the Gospels translated back into Aramaic, ending up in poetic form. Because, of course, one of the arguments is, well, how can people have remembered what Christ said without distorting it? Mm -hmm. But if you can say it's poetry, and much more easily... Yeah, it's pretty hard to distort poetry it in is. any significant fashion. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that's what you said. It's very interesting on several different levels. Um, well, I have a different kind, slightly different question. Um, because I'm thinking about the world that Jesus was in. Mm -hmm. It was part of the Roman Empire, of mm -hmm. course. A uh, very large, sophisticated empire. The locals spoke Aramaic, but they also were, for the most part, Jews, not all of them, mm -hmm. speaking Hebrew. They had certainly exposed to Greek and Latin. Uh, but you're assuming, without taking away from anything you said, you're assuming that people were reading or had who were literate, or at least many of them were. <coughs> and so there's another dimension here which is very interesting and quite different, and that's the world of the non-literate. Right. Uh, so at one level, Jesus goes to the temple, he speaks Hebrew, he speaks to the uh, Roman officer in Latin, and both of them are literate and capable of handling anything he has to say. On the other hand, Jesus goes up as the son of a carpenter and a lot of illiterate, ordinary people who can't cope. And uh, so that's in the mix too. And my major point here is that illiterate people, especially those who don't have direct, ongoing, exposure or need to know written language of whatever kind have a very different logic mm -hmm. and it, it's much closer to what you describe as your process of remembering po poetry although it's much more elaborate than that and it's quite different from the, the way we approach language of uh, many la different languages as literate people. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I agree that many of Jesus' listeners would not have been highly educated. However, in the Jewish tradition, like today, education was very important. Yes. Bo all boys were educated, no matter their uh, status in, in the Jewish tradition. And girls were also taught to read because it, they were the would become the gatekeepers of the dietary laws, for example. So there was a surprising level of education in that culture. But the parables are are, are for everybody. Yeah. They 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 are they begin with ordinary things and they are they're punchy, they tell a good story, they draw people in. So perhaps that is one of the reasons why Jesus uh used them extensively. But 
uh, the other part is that in that society, among the educated, the scribes, the Pharisees, uh, that group of people, yes, uh, intellectual debate back and forth was, was very much part of it. And Jesus engaged in that when he was speaking with the scribes and Pharisees. So in other words, I think what I, I have wanted to say is that Jesus had teaching strategies or ways to talk to all kinds of people across the board. Um, and uh, that, so we can't just use one way that privileges the educated. We can't, uh, and on the other hand, we have to be able to speak with people who are well-educated if God puts us in that kind of setting. So, yes, Sheila. Thank you for this, Susan. <clears throat> this has been such a neat summary of different ways of approaching it. I was attracted to your title because I came from a tradition which relied very heavily on the sermon. You know, the minister had to be a good preacher, and the rest was kind of um, supportive of that role. And one of the things that appealed to me about coming to an Anglican church was the liturgy, mm -hmm. because we are more participatory mm -hmm. in our services. My other comment <coughs> is about um, repetition. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, Repetition is actually a reflection in education of the, the uh, method called indoctrination. And it has a good side and a bad side. Mm -hmm. The bad side is Hitler and the big lie, mm -hmm. and, you know, telling the same lie over and over again. Or saying, you know, the press are liars. We've heard that one more recently, I think. And it's said over and over and over again. But the other thing that is said over and over again is the liturgy. And the whole of the gospel is said every morning, several times, with anybody who comes here to a service. All of it is there in the words that we are repeating. And I think even people who don't understand all of what some of those phrases mean are getting a message about that just in repeating the liturgy. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very good point. It's... It's interesting when you think about all of these things I've talked about it, they have a good side potential for deep learning and they have a problem side. Parables can be misunderstood. Questions can just lead to more questions and no answers. Uh, 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 what I've called reenactment deliberately to avoid that sense of liturgy being just mindless repetition Liturgy is wonderful, amazing. Probably most of us are here partly because of the liturgy at St. John's. Uh, but it can be mindless and repetitious. Yeah, so in all of these things, what I think what matters is the, the, the intention of the teacher using the best possible resources and tools and strategies for a particular time and place and group of people. And to uh, perhaps be unafraid to use surprises to help people, to jolt people out of complacency in letting it all become mindless repetition. Yes. Something that struck me about Jesus' responses, you know, somebody would ask him a question and he would answer in a way that at first blush it seemed like, oh, he's not answering the mm -hmm. question. He's going to a totally different place. Mm -hmm. And I see that again and again and again. And I think that's, 
kind of tied to what you just said is that he's trying to kind of uh, unbalance people, mm -hmm. take them out of their usual equilibrium, so they have a chance, because they're out of balance, to take a new step, not the habitual step. And uh, it's just uh, brilliant sometimes how he does that. One of the scholars who uh, wrote extensively about Jesus' use of questions was actually a UBC professor named Angus Gunn, who died fairly recently. Did you know him, Sheila? Yeah. Uh, and, and he says that what we need to do to understand Jesus' questions, and exactly that, what, what, where did that come from, is to ask what is his purpose, given what has happened before. What is he doing with this question? What, what does he want to achieve in the, in the people he's, he's questioning? And I, I think that can help us get at that, those connections. But dif definitely the disconnectedness was also part of what he was doing. Thank you. Louise. Um, I'm curious. I'm, I'm, when when um, someone was describing what you were talking about today, it was a little bit uh, not quite describe what you were actually speaking on. <coughs> And just what it's made me wonder is these things that you've talked about, how does it help you or does it help you in your approach or your work with unchurched university students? Mm -hmm. I think of my own unchurched nieces and nephews and young people that just I find easy to connect to on a more superficial level but hard to connect to in another way. Does some of this... Um, any suggestions or thoughts on how it helps you engage? I think it does. First of all, it has changed my... So all of this is from my thesis, my master's thesis at UBC a few years ago. Um, it, it changed the way I teach in general. I was teaching at Regent at the time. I was teaching academic writing, giving information. Academic writing, giving information what's wrong with plagiarism and how can you avoid it. And, uh, the, and so I, thought, I was learning all this stuff and I thought, I've got to change the way I teach. So the next term, I fortunately had a small class because big classes, big crowds, the lecture um, method is more appropriate. I had a smaller group and we sat around a table and I tried to make it tr totally interactive. And there was a girl from um, Czechoslovakia, as it was then, uh, there, and she said, I, I've never taken a class like this. For her, the ability to be sitting with the teacher, no power differential, and difference, I mean, and, no, and uh, not top-down, interactive, share, that was all new to her. So, yes, it affected my teaching in general. With people who aren't uh, Christians, and I, I have um, a Bible study, and it's an ESL Bible study with um, n n uh, scholars, mostly from China, but who know nothing about Christianity. And I, I think it, it makes me um, want to ask more questions rather than just give information. It, it makes me... Um, Let's see, how can I put this? It makes me want to be a better learner as well as a better teacher. 
it makes me open to different ways of doing things. Every Bible study I do is different. Same basic ideas, but it turns out differently. Re res being responsive to learners, which is um, a huge thing in adult education, uh, means that we, we have to respect our learners and respect where they're coming from. And asking the good questions to help them see things in new ways. So I wish I could be more like specific about that. But I think thinking about it helps. Yes. In your research for your thesis, did you come across, is there anything in the Jewish tradition that, that could, uh, speaks to this this rhetorical, if that's the right word, asking of questions? I, as you gave me a lovely talk, I kept thinking of, the prayer says to Adam, Adam, where are you? Which is, of course, a nonsense question. I have to say, oh, you're tricking me. You know where I am. But I take it Adam is supposed to get to know. Ask yourself this question, Adam. Why are you hiding? Yeah. Again, does the rabbinic tradition or anything, did they ever talk about the rhetorical questions in Hebrew scripture? Have you not known Israel? Have you not, have you not been taught, mm -hmm. the prophets will say? Is that there or is that just... Not that I particularly noticed. It's more about imparting information. Or that's impart, imparting good information rather than drawing out from people. But it is interesting in the Old Testament, those, those kinds of questions, the questions Job asks, for example. The, and the um, uh, David and the, the ewe lamb is a, the parable of the lamb to make David understand, feel what he had done um, in, uh, and very, very powerful. So there are, through the Old Testament, certainly indications of this being a way to go with teaching. But I'm sorry, I don't know enough, really, about the rabbinic tradition. Beth? I'm, I'm interested in the, the, use of, the use of silence. Um, it made me think, um, a long, long time ago, I was with a group of Quakers, um, and um, they used silence in kind of conflict situations. But I also uh, think of it in... Um, in our, where there's quiet in our liturgy, or it's, you know, we're so, um, as a society, we just kind of fill space. And um, uh, I think it's, like in group situations, it's, uh, it takes a lot of courage in Bible study to allow silence mm -hmm. so that people can kind of process. So I think it's a very powerful tool, mm -hmm. but um, it's hard to use it. Mm -hmm. I, I have only once heard a sermon that had silence in it, and it was in, um, in South Carolina. Uh, the 
I, I can't remember if it was the Bishop of South Carolina, was it, who preached at the cathedral and in the middle he stopped talking and stood there and it, it was pretty shocking. Uh, uh, I don't know how people felt about it. Probably they had many different feelings. Um, but it it was powerful. What What is this? What am I supposed to think? I'm not a very good thinker. I'm likely to think, what am I making for lunch? Uh, what, what do I do with this? Um, when I when I wrote in my thesis, when I wrote about silence, I said a silence in church is like a blank space in the middle of a thesis, and I left a blank space. Everybody who who, who read it from the university commented on it, and at the very end, when I took my thesis into final final you know stamp of approval, they, she flipped through it. And she said, what's this? And pointed to the blank space. And I said, it's about silence and it's about empty space. And she just looked at me like I was from another planet, <laughs> which in a way I am. Uh, and, uh, and she kind of, oh well, her, her committee's passed it. I guess they know what they're doing. Uh, it's strange. Yeah. Um, you were talking about how we don't have, you know, Poetry isn't uh, very stressed in our society anymore, and kind of a way of learning things. You know, we go to Google and everything, but I'm really struck by two songs by Bob Dylan that are very well known. They both ask a question, and they have repetition, and they rhyme, and one is, um, uh, how many rows? You know, it's the yep. one in the wind, and the other is, where are you going, my blue-eyed son, which is the one that he used for his novel. The whole point is that he's from an Orthodox Jewish background, yeah. and he was really captivated by uh, ballads and these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And those are well known to many, to several generations now. So it's really interesting. Yes. Well, even as I was preparing that, I was thinking about about this, and I think that it is in songs. Uh, that's the last remnant of poetry in our society that's commonly known. So, uh, I was at a graduation ceremony recently uh, where our new president of UBC, Dr. Ono, who is a Christian man, um, quoted a popular song. Um, I didn't know it. I'm not good at latest pop music, but um, it resonated with the, with the students. I saw lots of people nodding. It, it's partly the music, but it's also partly the poetry. Thank you. I just want to uh, join, please join me in thanking Susan again for such a great Thank you so much. Thank you.